Psalm 8. For the choir master, for the choir director, on the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the birds of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the, the beasts of the field, excuse me, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. So I must begin this uh, sermon with an admission to you, and al- almost a bit of an apology. You know, this sermon is going to is, is trying to capture the majesty, the beauty, the power, and the supremacy of God. And yet, any sermon, any message from a from a human messenger trying to capture the entirety of even one of those uh, attributes of God would be insufficient. We're going, going along kind of an impossible task this morning. Humanity has searched and sought to understand the nature of God since the dawn of creation. And yet throughout history, we have found new ways to understand God by turning Him into some heightened version of our own human understanding. Really what this means is that humanity's knowledge of God is nothing more than knowledge of ourselves and trying to force God to fit into that kind of mold. This form of understanding is, of, of God is, it only leads to misconceptions confusion and idolatry of self because if if what we think about God really means what we think about ourselves if we're trying to make God look like us then all we are doing is making trying to make ourselves out to be God this happens all across the world and and unfortunately it happens in the church as well you know there's some obvious examples of this, like what we would consider a more progressive church that focuses so much on the love of God without pairing it appropriately with His justice and, uh, and other attributes of God that they want to just do away with because that's uncomfortable to them. But there are other ways that, that we see this play out in the church as well. Things like a church that emphasizes internal matters to such a degree that they have no, uh, 
no witness or no influence on the, the community around them. Their actions express the insufficiency of their knowledge of God. If they knew God as fully as they say that they do, they would want to share that with everyone. And, they, and uh, on, on the other hand, with the progressive church, if they, if they understood the Lord as He ought to be understood, then they would recognize the urgency of the gospel message and, and let people know the, the wrath of God that is coming for those who uh, are, are slaves to their own sin. Now, seeing this trend in society, this, this trend of turning God into something that looks a lot like humans, J.B. Phillips uh, chose to write a short book in, entitled, Your God is Too Small. And in that book, he pointed out various ways that humans have chosen to settle for inadequate gods of their own design. And then he revealed, as much as he was able to in such a short book, uh, just a glimpse of the comprehensively divine, righteous, wise, just, and caring nature of God. Through his person and his work, that is revealed in Scripture. One uh, quote at the end of the section where he's looking at all these inadequate gods of, of the culture, he says, some of the gods we have considered are nothing more than artificial, but some of them are inadequate pinhole glimpses of the true light. They, there's something there of the true nature of God, but they're just getting a tiny glimpse and focusing on that rather than seeing the whole picture. What we are trying to do then is not to light fresh candles, but to take down the shutters. Once we wanted to to take down all these things that were blocking his readers from an accurate view of the majesty of God. Now, when, when faced with a question about God's character in this same vein, uh, specifically, the, uh, he was asked, why is, the, I'm speaking of R.C. Sproul here at this point, he was asked a question about God's character, specifically, why is God's punishment of Adam's sin so severe and long-lasting? He, he was asked that question, and it led to... Um, he was compelled to proclaim one of his most memorable quotes, what's wrong with you people? That was, that was the quote. He goes on to say, look, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. That was what compelled him so much to say, you, you think that an offense against a holy God doesn't require some sort of severe punishment. Really, the Lord was being gracious and not giving us exactly what we deserved in that moment when Adam sinned. That's what, that's what, what R.C. Sproul was saying there by proclaiming, what's wrong with you people? What, what, you need to understand the nature of God. Now, this is not to say that we need to aspire to a perfect knowledge of God or we'll not be saved. That's impossible for finite man to know the, the infinite nature of God. Any human conception of the nature of God will be insufficient. 
But as followers of Christ, believers in the one true Most High God, our lifelong pursuit needs to be that we would understand as much as we can about our great God and respond to Him in humble worship. And that brings us back to our text in Psalm 8 where David is marveling at the majesty of God while also recognizing man's position in the world in relation to Almighty God. So I pray that through our time studying this passage together, we'd be able to take down some of the shutters. And as we get a grand view of God through His creation and His work in man. So we'll begin just as this psalm begins by looking at creation. And here we see that the glory of creation is God Himself. The glory of creation is God. We see in these first three verses, David is marveling at the majesty of God, specifically shown through the glorious parts of of creation. And why is creation so glorious? Because God created it. Creation's glory is God's glory. Psalm 19.1 makes this very clear when, when David writes that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now the title of this at, at the beginning, before we get into what we see as the, the real versification here, the title uses the phrase, for the choir director. Now this shows up in a lot of psalms and it specifically is meant to imply that this psalm was meant to be sung with a large choir. It was meant to be this grand gesture to appropriately pl- praise the majestic Lord. And when we think about this word majestic the, that shows up uh, different times throughout this, this psalm, when, when David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, the word majestic means supreme, authoritative. He is the supreme authority. Now, the, the only real context we have for this word in modern times is oddly enough, in the British royalty where the king or queen is, is referred to as your majesty. And it's meant to show, the, in, in this case, the king's supremacy and authority over everyone else in Great Britain. Now, he may use that title of your majesty, but the authority that he has to govern that small island across an ocean it was only given to him by the one who is supreme over all of creation. Let me read a couple of passages that, that detail this specifically for us. Uh, Daniel 2.21, Daniel writes that it is he, meaning God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. The only person who has authority to put a person in a position of authority is the one who has all authority, and that is God. Another uh, passage for this would be in Psalm 47, verses 6-8, through right in the middle of this psalm. It says, Sing praises to our God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. 
For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. These, these passages and this psalm, Psalm 8, show us that all creation belongs to God. His glory and authority are on full display in every piece of the created universe. I'm reminded of the angel's song in Isaiah chapter 6 where they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. One pastor has said it this way, there is not one inch of creation, not one speck of dust, not one drop of water, not one grain of sand that does not respond to the absolute bidding of our God. And not only are God's authority and His glory on full display in in nature, His very presence is everywhere in the universe. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? He, he says, if I, if I were to go here, You would be there. If I were to go all the way to the depths of Sheol, Your hand would still be there to guide me. There is no part of the entire creation, the entire universe that is so broad and so expansive we can't comprehend its size And God fills it all. Do you see the immense glory and majesty of our God yet? Do you understand who this God is that we worship? Verse 3 here in Psalm 8 is meant to be kind of a bridge into David's next statement. He's just considering the works of of creation in order to, to get to his next point. But think about this. You can see in verse 3 the clarity uh, in this verse that, that everything around and above us, including every star in the sky, is all His direct creation. He is actively involved in the creation of every single thing on earth. Every single thing in the entire universe. He set even the stars and the moon in place and made them to express certain elements of creation for us. We can tell times and seasons throughout the year because of the position of the stars in the heavens. We can see the passage of time throughout any given month by seeing the waxing and waning of the light of the moon. And the Lord was gracious in showing us all these things so that even without our modern technology, we've got two different clocks back there showing me what time it is to make sure that I stay on time today. We, don't, we didn't even need that to understand the passage of time because God wrote that into the very nature of creation. Let me, let's go back to verse 2 even. Let, let's, let's think about this because we're looking at like the grand scope of the stars in the heavens. Now let's bring it back down to earth. Verse 2, let me read this again. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength. 
even things that we would not consider particularly powerful show the authority, the glory, and the strength of our God. There are those who pit themselves against the Lord of creation, who, who try to oppose His supremacy and authority by claiming that that He doesn't exist or anything like that. And yet, the majesty and complexity that we see in creation, even down to the complexity and the glory of, of a small child, silences the arguments of these enemies of God. Now, I want to, I wanna, before we move on, I want to make a, a brief caveat here. Yes, there are many enemies of God who directly and openly oppose God in the things that they say and do. We see that I mean, all, all around us on a regular basis. But there are many in the church, perhaps even many in this room, who by their actions prove that they do not believe in the supremacy of God and His glorious authority over every part of creation. They've warped and twisted their thinking and convinced themselves that a certain secret sin that they're harboring is okay. It's fine. It's, the, the Lord doesn't care about that. I'm able to keep that hidden. No, no one needs to know about that. Brothers and sisters, do not buy into the lie that says any corner of your life is hidden from God. He knows. He sees. Don't throw away the faith that you say you have all because you wouldn't let that one idol go that had control over your life. Recognize that God is all-knowing, ever-present, And live with that in mind. If He is orchestrating every part of our lives, then He deserves the glory due His name at every moment. Psalm 29 specifically declares, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. He is due that glory in every moment. And there there are times when each one of us fall into some sort of deception in our own minds that says, it's fine if I do this. No one will ever know. And that's just completely disregarding the the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of our great and glorious God. So we must put those things to death that are keeping us from acknowledging God's glory at any given time. You know, this is simple enough to understand, yet we must continue to put it into practice in new ways every single day of our lives. I mean, you really think, if you think about the simplicity of faith, that's even what, what we see in, in verse 2 as well. Think of the fact that, that Jesus told his disciples that they needed to have faith like a child. Mark 7.15, your faith must be like that that of of these little ones. The simple faith of a child is strong. Strong enough to dispel any other arguments that we might bring up 
in our own minds. Think of the simple yet profound truths in children's songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for tells me so. Amen. Or there's also my son's absolute favorite song, and I, I won't be able to sing it as, as epically as he does, but my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The strength and certainty of a childlike faith dispels the convoluted excuses of those who would call themselves intellectuals in the world who have warped their thinking in such a way that they deny the ever-present reality that God is the King over all the earth. Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 1 explaining this very same thing where he, he, he shows how God works mightily in the things that the world would consider weak simply to shame those who think that they are strong. And there's so much more that could be said here in this, the, just, just in this first section, um, but I, but I want to focus on one more piece right at the start of this psalm before we move on to the next section. And it's the, the first line of this psalm. O Lord, our Lord. David begins this psalm by addressing God by His personal name of Yahweh and then takes ownership of that God when he says, Our Lord. This infinite, majestic, holy, omnipresent, omnipotent, incomprehensible God has made Himself known and He calls us His own. That is the most glorious thing that we've, we've seen to this point. There, there are different contexts for this. Da when David was writing this, he was writing this as, <clears throat> excuse me, as the leader of Israel. He was the, the king over Israel, which was taken as God's chosen people. They had a direct claim to God as their personal God because God had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Us today, we can join in with what David says here, even though we, we may not be part of the, 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 the people of Israel, because we have been adopted into God's family by faith in Him. By our faith in Him as the one true sovereign Lord, by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we have been adopted as sons and daughters into this family of God. So we have the same ownership of God as the Israelites did, as David did here. And there's, there's nothing within us that would deserve such attention and care from God. And that is why we see in this next section of the psalm that the worth of mankind is God. Not, not only is the glory of not, not only is God in the glory of creation, God is the worth of mankind. Let me read verses three and four again. Like I mentioned, ver verse three really kind of ties in to verse four. 
So David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, this, this vast expanse of God's creation, it just makes everything else look small. Verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is finite man in comparison to the infinite, majestic, all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe? We are a species of life on a tiny speck of rock that's floating within a particular solar system that's located in a rather unimpressive part of our galaxy that just happens to be one of an incalculable number of galaxies in our wide universe. I mean, if you think about it from a purely secular, non-religious perspective, it would make sense that most of humanity that doesn't believe in God also doesn't see any importance in, in, or, or any, any real worth in mankind. Thinking that there, there must be other species out there because we can't be that, we can't be that special. That is not how God sees things. God took thought of us. He cares for us. He has even put us in authority over His creation here, uh, here on earth. <clears throat> now, I want to note something here really quick. In verse 5, it says that you have made Him a little lower than God and crowned Him with glory and majesty. I don't... Th- I don't think that the New American Standard translates this to to the best that they could. Uh, To say that humans were made a little lower than God would imply that there is some comparison between God and man, between creature and creator. We've already seen that God is entirely other. That He is this great, powerful, all-glorious, ever-present deity it is very different from us, mere, mere humans trapped within, within a specific body of flesh within a specific moment of time in a specific place. We're, there, there's no comparison between the two. I think a better translation would be what other translations say with either angels or heavenly beings. Uh, when, when the author of Hebrews quotes from this section of this psalm, he uses... The phrase that made, made him for a little while lower than the angels. So I think that would be a more appropriate uh, understanding of this since we see how God has created heavenly beings that are greater than us in, in, as far as their, their power and their, 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 the grand scale of them and the fact that, they, that the angels dwell in the actual presence of God in heaven. So what we see here is that, that God has given us authority that places us in, right underneath the authority of the angels and the other heavenly beings because we are over everything else that is on creation on earth. And verses 5-8 through eight <clears throat> here are meant to show the special place in nature that God has given to us. You know, David uses the imagery in verse 5 to express how man was made in the image of God. 
by saying that, that God crowns us with glory and majesty. Any majesty, which we know is supremacy or authority, so any sort of authority that we have on this earth is only because God has given it to us. We have a majesty that is derived from the source of all majesty. That's, that's the point here. Now turn with me quickly to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to see directly, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see directly what God said to the first man and the first woman that shows us the level of authority that we have over the rest of creation. Genesis 1, we're going to read verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the, this is the original creation mandate. This is the first real command that God gives to humanity. To be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth, and to have dominion over it that is that that was his his primary command to humanity he places he, the the image of god that that is talked about here there, there's a lot of debate about what that could be if we if we see it from this perspective we would see that it is the majesty and authority that is given to mankind over all creation we are god's representatives We've been given some level of His authority in order to represent Him on earth. We have no authority in and of ourselves. It's only that which was given to us by the One who created it all. And that's where we get back to, to Psalm 8, verse 6. It says, You have put all things under His feet. This is a common Hebrew illustration of authority or dominance. So this shows that we have authority over all creation, which is why we have obviously taken it and put it to use for ourselves. Building cities, uh, digging for drinking water, uh, using it for, for farming for the sake of food. There, there are countless other ways that we have taken the land that God created and shaped it to serve our needs. Because God, God has told us to... to rule over the earth in that way. Nevertheless, we must remember that God is the one who has given this to us. He has given us this world to subdue. And He has given us the authority to do so. And He continues to let us rule the world that He created despite our sin. 
Think of, uh, think of a couple of passages in the Psalms and say, uh, Psalm 130 in particular, it says, If you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If, if, if the Lord were to count our sins against us in the moment, none of us would be able to stand before Him. But verse 4 of Psalm 130 says, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Think also of Psalm 116. Uh, the very beginning of that psalm, it's one of my favorites, it says, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. And that phrase, call upon Him, to, ca- to call upon God, is to trust in Him above all else in all circumstances. Is this your attitude before the Lord? Do you honor Him and hold Him with such esteem that you trust Him in every circumstance? He has given us forgiveness of our sins so that we may fear Him and and appropriately worship Him in reverence and awe. It takes humility and an acknowledgement of our weakness before God. A willingness to recognize His vast supremacy over us as well as the grace that He extends to us. For us to call on His name and trust in Him takes that level of humility and a willingness to follow rather than go our own way. To think that we could actually go our own way. To, to think that we could actually go our own way. We've already seen that the Lord is, He ordains it all. There's nothing that we can do that is hidden from Him. So we're just admitting to the reality of what, what is before us. If He is our authority, then He deserves it all. Now this is all well and good, and we, we've that we've seen the glory of God on display in creation, and even in the worth that He has placed upon us as His representatives on earth. But even just in what we've what we've looked at in these first eight verses, we've only scratched the surface of how great and awesome and glorious our God is. As I was preparing for this, I was thinking of. So many other things that could have been added in, but then it would have been a two-hour sermon, and you don't want to sit here for that. I don't want to stand here for that, to be perfectly honest. So, uh, but th- this is a j- just to give you an idea of just how much there is that, that we can see of the glory and majesty and authority of our God. We're just getting to the the, the minimum of what there is to see of Christ, of, of our of our great and glorious Lord. I, buried, I betrayed the lead there. We, we, we need to look at this to the ultimate expression of God's thought for us. What is the ultimate expression of God taking thought of mankind? What is the clearest display of God's care for His creation? Jesus. The cross. The supreme authority. The majesty of 
of God is most clearly seen in the person and work of Christ. The majesty of God is Christ. He is the one whose name is majestic in all the earth, as David writes in Psalm 8, verse 9. David wouldn't have known specifically who that was, but he, he was looking ahead to the Messiah. He, he, he knew the nature of this person who was, who was to come. Thinking of the majesty of God that is Christ. He is the one whom we read as the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The one who is before all things. And in whom all things hold together. It's Colossians 1. Hebrews 1. The author of Hebrews goes so far to say that Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. He is God. He holds the same divine authority and supremacy that God the Father holds. Yet, He is also the one, as Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8 in in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the one who was willing to be made for a little while lower than the angels, becoming a man so that He could offer a proper sacrifice for the sins of man. He willingly emptied Himself, Philippians says, taking on human form and even becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. And because of His sacrifice, Paul continues to say that God has exalted Him highly and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was willing to die for our sake and He has proven the power of His saving sacrifice by His resurrection and His exaltation sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the promised One all the way back in Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the serpent. And if we think about the imagery given in in verse 2 of Psalm 8, Jesus' very cries as a baby would have proved what we saw. That God has established strength in a little child. That baby held the authority to be the one who would save His people and make His ultimate enemy cease. Christ's authority is unchallenged. David heard the Father say to Christ in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now isn't it interesting that we see that imagery related to Christ, to the Messiah, that, that, that all, of, all of His authority, that, that, that all of His enemies, all, all creation is put under him as a footstool. 
which we just saw in Psalm 8, verse 6. You have put all things under his feet. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 8, 6. And Jesus even said it himself when he said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. Everything is in submission to his authority. The disciples knew this. And they made it clear from the dawn of the church age, Acts 4.12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. He is the one man who could, fill the, who could fulfill the mandate of creation and fully subdue and rule the earth in the authority that God had given. Can you see it? Can you see the grand, incomprehensible scope of the character of our God who calls us His children, who has saved us by His love and grace, taking the justice of punishing sin upon Himself so that we might see His supreme authority. And so what should be our response? I mean, first of all, we can join with David at the end of this psalm just in awe and wonder to say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let me also answer that question of what must be our response by returning to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What do I have that is worthy to give to this great God and Savior? What can I give him for all that he's given to me? Verse 13 I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. So, what do I have that I can give for, for all that he has given to me? Nothing more or less than what He has already given back to, to receive His salvation and to lean on Him in humble trust all of my days, all of your days. As I said at the beginning, any human conception of the nature of God will be insufficient in some way. Even, even considering everything that we've seen in this psalm, we still could not accurately portray the nature of God perfectly just because of our finite nature. But again, as followers of Christ, believers in the Almighty, Supreme, Glorious, Most High God, our lifelong pursuit needs to be that we would understand as much as we can about our great God and respond to Him in humble worship. We've barely scratched the surface this morning. Every page of this book 
points to the great and glorious, perfect, indescribable character of our God. Psalm 8 shows us the glory of the creation. It comes from the Creator. The psalm shows us that humanity has worth and authority. It's all derived from God. David praises God in His supreme majesty. The great fulfillment of that majesty is Christ. His name is majestic in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, make it your lifelong goal to know as much about this wonderful Savior as you can. Cherish and honor Him above all else, the joy and crown of your soul. Rejoice in the the beauty and and the glory of created things, but let them point you to the Creator. Make your song every single day all glory, honor, praise, and adoration be to our God now and forevermore. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You, the fact that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your creation, that is enough for us to marvel in who You are. Enough for us to see the, the glory and the majesty. Your, your supremacy, Your authority over all things, Father. And yet, it wasn't enough for You to just show us who You were through the creation. You've spoken to us. You've shown us Your character. You've shown us the ultimate fulfillment of Your glory and authority in the person of Christ. So that through Him, we would have more than just an understanding of You through Your creation, but we would see You fully as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as, as our supreme joy if we have trusted in You. Father, help us to have, continue to have eyes that see You. May, may we never tire of, of searching Your Scriptures to learn more about who You are to understand even more fully the glorious nature of your salvation. We, we still don't understand all the complexities and the, the last little bits and pieces of it. And we, we will have eternity to look into those things. And even then, there will still be more for us to see of your glory and majesty, God. Pray that in this life, we would never tire of that. That this would just be a foretaste, an appetizer of what we will experience for all of eternity. That we would know You. That we would rejoice in knowing You and and longing to know You all the more. To expand our knowledge of You. Not let You be this small concoction in our own brains. But that we would see You for the grand 
supreme authority that you are. We love you, Father, and we thank you for all that you have revealed to us in this psalm. We pray this in your name. Amen.